I don't even know where to start with you. I don't have any praise for you. Do you have homes that you could eat or drink in? You have to ridicule the poor and, and grieve the Holy Spirit by highlighting your division in what is meant to be the holiest moment during the worship service where you highlight your unity and oneness and everything that Jesus has done for you? Do you not care about the death and resurrection of Jesus? Do you not care about the church to whom Christ died for? Do you not care about your neighbor? Do you care at all? Do you love your neighbor? Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses serious problems in the church that we still deal with in our day. And through this series, we're also learning how we can live for Christ even as we're tempted to live for ourselves. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. Verse 17, if your Bible is open, Paul tells this little church, he says, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Ouch, like could, could you imagine being this tiny little church receiving this letter for the very first time, the whole congregation is there, and those words are uttered. And most of you who have been following along in this series, you know already that this church was filled with divisions. In fact, uh, you could probably organize this entire letter or this book based on all of its different divisions. So as a bit of a recap, here's what I shared with you in the first two weeks in terms of our outline. We talked about the divisions in the church, all the various divisions they were facing. That's the first four chapters. Then they had a lot of divisions with respect to sex and the body, and we talked about that. And then the divisions that they had about food and the body and meat sacrifice to idols, and there's deep divisions on what you can eat and where you can eat it and who you can eat it with. And then, starting last week and into today, we're looking at the fourth theme, which is the church and its gatherings, and all of it is highlighting the different divisions within their gathered worship services, and eventually we're going to get to the culminating moment, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul outlines for us that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is ultimately what will lead us to a spirit of unity in the midst of our diversity. And that's where ultimately he's going. And so we've seen that there's divisions over convictions, over about moral issues, who's right, who's wrong. But also, one of the things that's going to be highlighted especially today is cultural divisions. Uh, divisions with respect to race or culture or socioeconomic class, or gender. All these sorts of divisions were highlighted in this little church as well. See, the, Jesus' vision for the church was not as much uniformity in all things cultural, but that we would have a deep sense of unity and oneness in the midst of our diversity, in the midst of our differences, and that we would see it as a beautiful mosaic highlighting the complexity and the uniqueness and the beauty of the creation that God has made. And that it would be a good thing that we would celebrate. And yet in this tiny little church, it wasn't being celebrated. In fact, it was highlighting many of their differences. It reminds me of what Martin Luther King Jr. once said in the 1960s when he had expressed that the most racially divided hour in America at that time was Sunday morning at 10 a.m. 
And this little church is experiencing something similar. Major divisions are going on within this little church. So you might recall last week that the central question that I wanted us to kind of hang out on was this. What are the timeless truths that Paul is expressing in this particular chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? And I shared with you that both last week and now this week, the central theme can be defined this way, unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. But here's where it gets really, really depressing. For this little church, the one place that should have displayed their unity the most being the celebration of the Lord's Supper, it actually became one of the ways in which it highlighted the disunity and the segregation and the division of this church most of all. And it grieved the heart of Paul. And it grieved the Holy Spirit. So if you have your Bibles open, and I hope you do, if you don't have a Bible, get the smartphone out, follow along with me. We just heard all of it read, but we're also going to walk through it again. Let's pick up at verse 17 and hear these words again. It says this, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. He's talking about the corporate worship gathering. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. That is a joke, by the way. He's not saying that intentionally. He's saying uh, that as, as a bit of a jest. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another person gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So picture this with me. Remember in the early days of the church, there were no church buildings there was the synagogue for the Jews, and they worshiped together on Saturdays, the Lord's Day. But for the Christian community in the first century, typically, they would gather together in homes. And typically, they would gather together in homes of wealthy people because they had larger homes to accommodate everyone. And as I shared with you already, the most conservative estimates of this church was about 50 members, maybe up to 100 members, but it wasn't an enormously large church. And so they were likely gathering together in a home of a wealthy person. And so every Sunday, they would share a meal together, and it would, there would be this quintessential moment. And as they're sharing the meal together, they would remember the sacrifice of Jesus, the giving of his body and his blood, so that we can all be saved. But here's one of the cultural elements that we have to just know, which will hopefully bring this story into a more clearer focus. Sunday in the first century was not a Sabbath day. It was just a normal day. So as I shared with you already, the Jews had a Sabbath. That was Saturday. But the, the Gentiles, they didn't have their own version of a Sabbath day. Sunday was like Wednesday, just a, a normal, ordinary day. So if you were a wealthy person, an affluent person, then you would arrive at this home early. And if you were a working class person, someone who was, uh, did not have financial means, Sunday you probably worked all day. 
And in Eastern cultures, if a service starts at 10 a.m., you arrive somewhere between 8 a.m. and 12 p.m. In the West, we're not like that, are we? If a service starts at 10, we arrive between 9.59 and 10.01. But in the West, that's not how it goes, right? In the, in, in the East, sorry, that's not how it goes. You can just arrive whenever you want to arrive. And that is similar in many Eastern cultures today. And so you would have wealthy people, they would arrive early, they would enjoy social time, they would enjoy a good meal with each other, and the working class would arrive later, migrating into work, and, but by then, all the seats in this little church were occupied, and they were pushed back and back and back. We see this especially in verse 21. Look at your Bibles with me. It says this. It says, for... When you are eating, some of you go ahead. That's a really interesting Greek word. It's prolambano, which literally means to go and eat early. So that's what he's saying. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead and eat early with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Could you imagine? Like one thing we've never had that I know of is someone getting drunk during the worship service. But that's going on in this little church. And then we see even in Paul's instruction in verse 33, he says this, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you eat together, you should all eat together. You should eat together. And that's the Greek word ekdekomine, which literally means you should wait for them. You should all wait until everyone arrives and then you should enjoy the meal. Pretty self-explanatory. I'm not sure why I have to tell you this, but you should wait until everyone arrives and then you should eat Together. So let me just share an image with you. Here is a uh, characterization of what a first century home of a wealthy person may have looked like. So right here at the top, you have this dining area. And they didn't use tables, or sorry, chairs the same way that we did. So they're all lounging on the ground. Think of your living room, your kitchen, your social areas all wrapped up into one. And this was the main area in which people would gather. And so you can see the wealthy who arrived early, they would all be here. And then when the working class arrived, where would they go? They're here in the courtyard. And so some of these homes, the courtyard would be open to the sky, others would be enclosed. But you can imagine those who get there early get the seats of honor, and those who arrive late are back and back and back and back and back. Those who arrive early enjoy a good meal. Those who arrive late don't get anything to eat. Those who arrive early share a glass of wine, which turns into two, which turns into three, which turns into four. And those who arrive late don't have anything to drink. And so there's this culminating moment where they begin to celebrate their unity and their oneness highlighted through the death and resurrection of Jesus by participating in the Lord's Supper. And Paul says it's a farce. There's no unity. There's no oneness in this at all. And so essentially it would be like if they had two separate campuses, one for the rich and one for the poor. And by the time the poor got there, all the food was gone. One group is hungry, the other is drunk. That's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. And so the poor felt excluded. But here's where it goes from bad to downright terrible. The final part of this meal included that moment to observe the Lord's Supper, right? The bread and the cup. And so the rich are stuffing their face 
and the poor are discouraged and hungry. And that is the reason why Paul says what he says in verse 17. I have no praise for you. Your meetings do more harm than good. Uh, pastor and author Andrew Wilson, I mentioned him last week. He gives a really interesting word picture of this. Let me just read this to you. He says this. In social terms, communion is meant to feel or was meant to feel like a potluck dinner with everyone sharing together no matter how much or how little they could afford. But instead, here's what we're seeing here, it has become an airplane meal. Everyone has their own private supper with the, re the rich eating first class and even getting drunk in the process and the poor getting leftovers, if that, in the seat at the back by the toilets. That's where some of you will be when we do the Egypt, Jordan, Israel trip. Not sure who, but some of you. Paul is completely exasperated by this. You can even like sense his tone in verse 22, right? He says, I don't even know where to start with you. I don't have any praise for you. Do you have homes that you could eat or drink in? You have to ridicule the poor and, and grieve the Holy Spirit by highlighting your division in what is meant to be the holiest moment during the worship service where you highlight your unity and oneness and everything that Jesus has done for you? Do you not care about the death and resurrection of Jesus? Do you not care about the church to whom Christ died for? Do you not care about your neighbor? Do you care at all? Do you love your neighbor? And so in doing this and to address this, Paul lays out what you might just call a theology of the Lord's Supper. He wants you to realize that one of the ways, the way that we can try to minimize the deep divisions and segregation that occurs in churches is if we had a healthier, more robust theology of communion. Theology of the Lord's Supper. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, Justin, I just thought this was a practical issue, you know? Some people are sitting in the seats of honor. Some are sitting in the back. Some are enjoying good food. Some are not getting food. We've got to ask more people to bring food to the potluck. I don't know. These are all just practical issues. Paul says, no, no. These aren't practical issues. These are deeply inherent theological issues. Because if you had a good theology of the Lord's Supper, this would never happen. And friends, that's the opportunity that we have now to enter into the story. Up to this point, you might be thinking, well, we've, we've never had a person get drunk in a worship service. Certainly we're doing A-OK. -okay. But Paul, you've got to see what he's doing here. He's going to rise up to 30,000 feet in the air and he wants to highlight some general principles so that we can be a deeply united church today. That all churches, including Gateway, can be deeply united. So allow me to share some of the practical principles that Paul lays out for all churches in all times and places. So don't forget the logic. Paul says that if we do the things that he is about to lay out for us, if we truly believe them and we try to find the practical ways of applying these truths in a local context, then all of our social divisions, the division between men and women, the division between Jews and Gentiles, racial divisions and segregations, socioeconomic divisions, all of them would go away because we would see Jesus for who he truly is. And we would see ourselves as fellow image bearers of God. And so that's what he wants 
to lay out for you. And he does this by giving us four places to look. And this is what I put in your note sheet. Four places to look. The first one he says, dear Christian, look up. Look up. And where he says that is in verse 23. Look at this with me. Verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the, the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so Paul says, this always starts with an acknowledgement of what Jesus Christ has done for us. His sacrifice for us. One of my favorite stories that, that highlights this reality was when the reformer Martin Luther, before he became a devout, what we might call Protestant Christian, who understands the salvific work of Jesus, before that moment, he used to go to a place called the Scala Sancta which means the holy stairs. And he would grovel on his belly and he would climb up these stairs piously kissing every single step until he got to the top of the Scala Sancta and there he saw it, the image of God the judge. And in that moment, he would fall down upon himself and he would begin to weep and to cry and he would say, Father, look upon me, your servant. I am a worm. I am a wretch. I am a sinner. There's nothing that I can do. I'm not moral enough. I'm not ethical enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not obedient enough. God, be merciful to me. Here's a man who fully understood his condition without Jesus. And then he started reading the New Testament. He started reading more about the work of Jesus in his life. And at a certain moment, he realized that God's grace through Jesus was sufficient for him. He began to realize that through the sacrifice of Jesus that he could not outsin the cross. That Jesus was the once for all giving of himself so that we can be set free. And so he suddenly saw it. He said, the reason why Christ came was to make a way when there was no way. Let me say that again. The reason why Christ came was to make a way when there was no way. Communion before anything else expresses that reality to you and to me. And so with gratitude in our hearts, we participate in, in our own sort of scala sancta, recognizing that apart from the work of Jesus, apart from the intervention of Jesus, all of us would have been left to our own devices. All of us would have fallen short of the glory of God, and there's nothing that we could have done about it. And then we see it. We see Jesus who sets us free. But that is why Paul says what he says in verse 25. Look at this. He says, in remembrance of Jesus, whose body was broken for you, whose blood was on the cross, inaugurates what he calls the new covenant in his blood. He made a way when there was no way. He made a way when there was no way. And so with that knowledge, number two, Paul says, look forward. Look forward. And we see this especially in verse 26. 
Verse 26 says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, circle, highlight, underline, the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So Paul says that the main way that we, that we look forward isn't by just sitting around and waiting for the second coming of Jesus, you know, sitting on our lazy boy, enjoying a pina colada. The, the way that we anticipate the coming of Jesus is that we are to be proclaimers. And when you think of that word, you might be thinking about me or anyone who stands on this stage. Aren't, aren't you the proclaimer? Aren't you the preacher? Well, yes, I am. But Scripture says all y'all are meant to be proclaimers of the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into light. All of us are proclaimers. And one of the key ways that we make this proclamation is through our participation in the Lord's Supper, that the Lord's Supper is itself a proclamation of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the work that he has done in your heart and in my heart as we participate in those things. And so one of the ways that we talk about this in terms of our Reformed theology is we say that the sacrament is both a sign and a seal of God's promises. So let's, let's look at both of these. Number one, uh, the, the Lord's Supper is a sign. So you might picture a ring. Here's, here's my wedding ring. I've been carrying this one around for 13 years. And this signifies that Julie and I are married. Now, if I was walking down the street and they didn't know who I was and they'd never met Julie before, they could look at my left hand, which is on my second finger. They look at this and they know that I have made a covenant, a lifelong exclusive covenant with someone, that I'm, I'm a married person. And it's the reason why, friends, we don't wear rings on our toes with shoes on so no one can see it or a ring that is kind of on a necklace or going down so that no one can see it. We wear it on our hand. It is a sign for all to see. But also, a ring is a seal. So you think about, uh, especially in the olden days, we don't do this anymore, but a king or a prince or a noble or a war general, they would often wear signet rings. So if they were to write a letter and fold it up and put it in an envelope, the last thing they would do is put some wax on the envelope, take their signet ring, and put their impression upon it. Then when they sent it out, the person who was receiving that letter, they would know without a shadow of a doubt, this came from that person. It came from the war general or the king or the prince or whomever. And in the same way, our ring is a seal of the covenant promises that we have made. The Lord's Supper is exactly the same. Exactly the same. It is a sign of the promises of God, and it is a seal that his promises are as good as done. And that is good news for the Christian. And so there are three things that we are to proclaim when we think about the Lord's Supper. And it just so happens that we get to participate in that today. I didn't plan that when I made this series, you know, months upon months ago. But here we are. What a beautiful way to celebrate this. But there's three things that the Lord's Supper proclaims. Number one, it proclaims that we are all in desperate need of the salvation of Jesus. Every person in this room is in desperate need of the salvation of Jesus. And then we can say, if salvation could have been obtained any other way, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. 
If salvation could have been obtained through your good deeds, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. If salvation could have been obtained through some sort of different philosophy or religion, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die. And yet he did. See, I think one of the challenges for us as uh, 21st century Western Canadian Christians is we like to be culturally sophisticated people. And so one of the ways that we're tempted to do that is to say, yeah, I follow Jesus. That's, that's the religion for me. But like if, if you are sincere in your own religion, then hey, like God bless you. God, God will honor that. He'll bless that. Do you see how offensive that is to the sacrifice of Jesus? You think about the words of Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26. Everyone who's going on the Egypt-Jordan-Israel trip is going to have an opportunity to go to Gethsemane. We're going to see this with our own eyes. That was the place where Jesus says this, My Father, if it is possible, if there is any other way, any other philosophy, any other plan, any other mountain to climb, oh God, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And are you telling me that God the Father said, well, you know, like, uh, there are a couple of other ways, you know, at least six or seven other ways. But I, I want there to be an eighth way, so yeah, you've you got to go and die. No. We believe as Christians that there is one way, and it is the sacrifice of Jesus. It creates and generates a sense of urgency in our hearts for those who have not yet encountered Jesus and found the love of Jesus that he has saved us from ourselves. And that leads to the second thing. It proclaims that you can be saved. That you can be saved. That, that, uh, think about this. When, when Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you, the you in that sentence is anybody who is a you. Are you a you? Then you are someone who is eligible for the good news of Jesus. And as I've shared with you before, a way I'd love for you to think about this, if you have a rap sheet a mile long in terms of the mistakes that you have made, if you're someone who says, Justin, you just don't know the mistakes that I have made. If you knew, you'd run me out of here so fast. If that's you, here's what you gotta see. The thief on the cross Receive the good news. And so here, here's what you got to know. You cannot outsin the cross. You cannot outsin the cross. Jesus Christ died once for all. And the question that you have to ask is, am I ready to receive that with gratitude and thankfulness in my heart? And that leads to the third thing. Number one, it proclaims that we're in, the, in desperate need of the salvation of Jesus. Number two, it proclaims that you can be saved. Number three, this table proclaims that our church, Gateway, is first and foremost a community of the forgiven. A community of forgiven people. And so here's how this applies back to this first century context in this little church in Corinth. They were filled with religious pride and smugness. And Paul says, through the power of the Holy Spirit, religious pride and smugness have no place at the table. 
That's why Paul says, where is boasting? Where is boasting? Anyone get into this place on account of their own merit? On their own good deeds? Did anyone get here, you know, kind of just like bypassing the sacrifice of Jesus? That you're the sharpest tool in the shed? Anyone here? Where's boasting? You have no boasting that you can make because all of us are here because of the sacrifice of Jesus. We are first and foremost lost sinners who have been redeemed for by grace you have been saved through faith. And even this is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God so that no one can boast. So that no one can boast. All of our best righteousness, Isaiah says, is like filthy, diseased rags. The blood of Jesus is the only hope for the best of us. And the blood of Jesus is the certain hope for the rest of us. It is the hope that we have. So any other form of division has no place at the table, whether it be classism uh, between rich and poor or sexism between men and women or racial division or, or any other form of division. It has no place at the Lord's table because all of us come as equals. Worms. Here's where we're all at. Every single one of us in this room are here. And yet we have been exalted and elevated because of the work of Jesus. And I would love to say that all that religious smugness was done away with and paid for through the dumb tax of this little church. That all the, the churches that came after this one in Corinth, they all said, okay, we get it. That makes total sense. Mistake averted. Thank you for teaching us that lesson. We're never going to do that again. And yet churches have been banging their head on this for over 2,000 years. You think about what was going on in the United States in 1960. Dr. Clarence Jordan, he was a Baptist preacher in Sumpton County, Georgia in the early 1960s. And if you know your history well, you know that in 1960, the Supreme Court banned all forms of segregation by race, whether that was on buses or in churches or in schools. And yet here's what he said to that. This was really interesting, the connection that he made to the sacrament of communion. He said, the thing that breaks my heart is that the Supreme Court is coercing pagans to act more Christian than the Bible is compelling Christians to act Christian. Wow. I can hardly stand it when I see the integration struggle being fought, not in the household of God, but on buses, the depots, and around Woolworth tables. We're arguing about whether or not we can sit down and eat hamburgers and drink Cokes together when, hear this, we ought to have been sitting around Jesus' table, drinking the wine and eating the bread together. The sit-ins never would have been necessary if Christians had been sitting down together in church at Christ's table all these many years. So listen, friends. The Lord's Supper is itself a sermon where we look forward and we proclaim the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which destroys all division and all disunity. But you might ask that question. You might say, okay, Justin, but how do we do that? Like, aren't these sins as old as Cain and Abel? 
Don't we all have that sin nature, that traitor within that's constantly deceiving us, that's constantly causing us to hate our neighbor and to love ourselves and to be narcissistic and to push others down? Yeah, we, we got all that. So how do we fight against this? How do we do this? Well, that's where Paul goes next. The way I put it in your note sheet, third point is this, look inward. And I'm not saying look inward like look to yourself for all of your strengths. No, it's actually the opposite of that. See what Paul says in verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to, here's the important piece, examine themselves. That's what I mean by looking inward. You must examine yourselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So the best way that we can fend off our own religious smugness or elitism or, or the hatred of our neighbor is by keeping our binocular Bibles at home and bringing our mirror Bibles here and reflecting on our own sin nature, the traitor within which keeps us from loving our neighbor as ourselves. And I think the best example of this that we find in Scripture is when Jesus gives us the parable of the unmerciful servant. A servant comes before a king, and he has an insurmountable debt, a debt that he couldn't pay off in more than a hundred different lifetimes. And he goes before the king, and he says, give me time, allow me to pay back my debt, which is humorous because he can never do it. And the king absolves him of the entire debt. And he says, you're free to go. And that same servant, just like that, in the same moment, he goes down the street. He finds another servant of his own. And what does he do? He only owed him four days wages, just a couple of days. And he throws him in prison. What is the spiritual condition of this unmerciful servant's heart? What's going on? He's brought his binocular Bibles not his mirror Bible. He has failed to see the implications of the forgiveness of God and how that should now be applied for his forgiveness of his neighbor. He'll take the forgiveness of God all day, but he refuses to let go of the resentment and the bitterness and the anger and the hatred of his neighbor. And Paul says we can't have any part in that. You have to see both the vertical and the horizontal implications of the good news of Jesus. And that's really where it gets interesting. Look at your Bibles with me. Look at verse 27. This one pinches. He says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of our Lord. So what does it mean to eat unworthily? What does that look like? Let me give you three examples from this text because I think it's important for us to camp here to be good self-evaluators of our own hearts because they are treacherous and deceitful. Three things that Paul identifies. The first one is a spirit of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. This is someone who doesn't realize just how dependent they are upon God's mercy. It's the unmerciful servant again. 
If you approach the table of our Lord in this way that says, you know, God's lucky to have me on his team, or I'm sharper than the average tool in the shed, or it's God's grace a little bit, but it's also moral um, deeds that I'm doing, and I'm a little bit better than other people, therefore I've earned my way partially into heaven. All of that needs to be thrown away. All of it needs to be thrown away. And so here's what's so interesting about this. Here's the great irony about participating in the Lord's Supper. If you know that you are unworthy, then you are approaching the table worthily. But if you are approaching the table as though you are worthy, thinking that you are worthy, then you are approaching the table unworthily. And we have to think about that in our own hearts. It reminds me of the story of Jesus in Luke 18. He says this, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, like robbers, like evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. And then the camera shifts to the second character. But the tax collector stood at a distance He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Just like Martin Luther did with the skull of Sancta. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Self-righteousness and smugness have no place at the table of our Lord. We think of the words from the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 81. Here's the question. Who should come to the Lord's table? The answer, those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that the remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and the death of Christ. There is no room for self-righteousness at the table. Number two, there's no room for defiance and unrepentance. I think that's the key word, unrepentance. In preparation for the sermon, uh, I read a resource from pastor and author J.D. Greer, who wrote on this chapter in preparing his congregation to come before the table um, of the Lord. And he said this, this one might sting. He said, If you partake of this table when you are openly and intentionally living in a way that you know displeases God, you are engaging in the very lifestyle that put Jesus on the cross. Think about it. In taking the bread and the cup, you are saying, thank God for Jesus and his death, but then with your life, you are openly crucifying him. And so here's the implication. You cannot shout, worship him, and crucify him at the same time and not expect God's anger. So catch the nuance here. This is really important. This is not a call for moral perfection. This is not a call for moral perfection. Far from it. Otherwise, no one would ever be able to come to Jesus. When when we gave you the elements this morning, all of you should just hold them in your hand and not participate in them because no one is worthy. Not a single person in this room. But the Lord's Supper is not a congratulatory banquet for the sinless. It's not that at all. It is a sustaining meal for the repentant sinner who is hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of God. 
and who knows that they have fallen short and who desire to the best of their ability with the help of the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience so that when you fall, you fall forward into the sustaining arms of Jesus. Those are very different things. And there's a third and final way that we can eat and drink unworthily, and it is this. It is with a spirit of division. A spirit of division. Now, I think the logic of Paul is that self-righteousness is ultimately what leads to this division. But I think it's still a healthy and helpful assessment of our own hearts to ask ourselves that question. Do I have a spirit of segregation? Do I have a spirit of division? Do I have a spirit of disunity? Because if we have an accurate assessment of ourselves and our desperate need for Jesus, we would never fall into the trap of thinking too highly of ourselves and too low of our neighbor who is in equal need of the grace of God. We would see all of us on an equal playing field in desperate need of Jesus. And so we add it here just for your own self-assessment. You think about the words of Jesus. He says, if you are offering a gift at the altar and you have division with your brother in Christ, leave the gift before the altar and go reconcile with him first. First be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so the way that I've expressed this before to you, you've heard me say this before, is we cannot accept the vertical grace of Jesus and refuse to bestow it horizontally toward our neighbor. That is anathema to the Christian. It makes no sense. You cannot enter into the household of God and refuse to get along with his kids in that household. They come as a package deal. And I know that most of us, we would much rather have a me and Jesus relationship. It's cleaner. It's easier, is it not? And yet Jesus says, I died for the church. I died for her so that she might become a pure and spotless, beautiful bride before me with no stain and no blemish. That's all of us, all of us together. Jesus wants us to be unified. And so therefore, we see that we are called to look up, we're called to look forward, we're called to look inward at the, the evil and the sin in our own hearts, and only after those first three steps do we now have the capacity to look at the body of Christ, to look at our neighbor. To look at our neighbor. So how does God feel about those who take the bread and the cup, saying, I'm thankful for this bread, I'm thankful for this cup, it is the salvation of God, all the while harboring bitterness and resentment in our hearts toward our neighbor? He says we cannot do those things. In fact, think of what Paul says in verse 29. Read this with me. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's serious. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. What? But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being dis uh, disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. Did Paul just really say that God might make a person sick or even die if they do not discern the body of the Lord? 
Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He says it's that serious. Now, you got to catch the implication. He, he uses this as a means of discipline so that you will not ultimately be condemned. That's verse 32. The desire is that you do not fall into condemnation. The desire is that you would learn from that, turn away from it, and be reunited with the body of Christ. That's the goal. And yet Paul says it's that serious. So here's a way of thinking about this. One way to think about this is if you have disagreements with your neighbor, if you have uh, harbored bitterness or resentment towards your neighbor, if you have struggles in that area, if you have a lack of trust in your neighbor, then what we are called to do is to put all of that into the hands of Jesus, who is fully just and fully true, and to allow him to take care of it. To say, God, I give this to you. Because as I've shared with you before, harboring bitterness and resentment is just like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. So you give it over to Jesus. You lay it into his hands. And in so doing, you might pray a prayer like this. Jesus, I give you all of my anger. I give you my vengeance. I give you my bitterness. I give all of it to you. And then think of praying your prayer like this. Help me to love my neighbor in the way that you have loved me when you took to the cross. Help me to love my neighbor in the way that you have loved me when you took to the cross. And that would be a moment of incredible gospel clarity. You've been listening to the latest message in our First Corinthians series, focused on learning godly solutions to the problem of sin in our lives. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.